0: What's going on, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. I am pumped for you to listen to this episode of the show, which is going to feature Dr. Jason Fung, a Toronto-based kidney specialist who also happens to be an expert on obesity medicine and metabolic health. He's written extensively on fasting and has recently even published in the journal BMJ Case Reports, three success stories utilizing intermittent fasting as an intervention to reverse insulin resistance in patients with type 2 diabetes. Over the next hour, you're going to discover why Dr. Fung believes that obesity is more of a hormone issue than one of mere energy balance. You're going to learn why not eating at all is often easier than calorie restriction, what effects consuming things like coffee or bone broth have on fasting, how extended fasting affects your muscle and metabolism, does it slow it down like many believe, the benefits of a cellular cleanup process called autophagy and the approximate time frames in which it becomes active, and so much more. If you're a regular listener of this show, I know it must feel like Every new episode is my favorite episode, but I gotta be honest, this episode is pretty damn special. We go deep into the hormonal and behavioral aspects of obesity, and you know, this is something Dr. Fung is very passionate about, because he sees this all the time in his practice. I mean, type 2 diabetes is one of the major causes of chronic kidney disease, and chronic kidney disease is consistently in one of the top 10 causes of death in the US um, year after year. But even if you're not obese, type 2 diabetic, or even overweight, you're gonna get a lot from this episode, and I'm pumped for you to listen. To it but before we really uh dive in i want to give a shout out to medicinal mushrooms and particularly a brand of mushroom infused coffee that i really enjoy i am currently about two servings deep into lion's mane infused coffee from four sigmatic They make a line of wonderful instant coffees infused with medicinal adaptogenic mushrooms like lion's mane and cordyceps and chaga. Their coffees are organic and what adaptogens provide is almost like a vaccine against stress. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration. Adaptogens are not able to actually vaccinate you against stress. They can't even prevent stress from happening to you, but what they can do is help bolster your body's physical defenses against psychological stress. Now, I wish I could say that there was a ton of research out there on adaptogens, but, you know, these are compounds that have been used in traditional medicine for millennia. If you'd like to give them a try my favorite company to get them from is four Sigmatic. and you can head over to foursigmatic.com max or use promo code max to save 15 percent off of everything in their online store again that's promo code max and that's the deepest discount that you're going to get anywhere for four Sigmatic products so head over there check them out support this podcast that would mean the world to me all right now we're seconds away from my chat with dr jason fung Before we get into it, I just want to remind you that if any aspect of this interview speaks to you, please take a moment and share it on social media, either on Twitter, um, by tweeting a link, or on Instagram by taking a screen grab and posting it to your Instagram stories. Help me spread the word about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. You can also support this podcast in other ways by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. It's very easy to do. Just leave that five or four star rating, whatever it is that you want to leave. No judgments, no pressure and uh, leave a review. Let me know you know, what you're digging about the show, what you'd like to uh, see me improve. I read every single review, and I appreciate all of them. All right, guys. Well, once again, I really hope that your January is off to a great start, and um, I'm pumped to welcome Dr. Fung to the episode, so please give him a warm welcome. Dr. Fung, thank you for being here with me.
1: Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Um, so I guess let's start at the top. Why don't you share a little bit about your background and how you came to be so passionate about obesity medicine? Uh,
1: so I'm uh, trained as a kidney specialist. The um, main cause of kidney disease is really type 2 diabetes. And the thing is that uh, with the way it was sort of trained to treat type two diabetes, which is the same as most doctors. Is that you know when they get their kidney disease, then you put them on dialysis or you give them drugs, and so on. And um, you know a few years ago, it sort of struck me as not exactly the best way to be treating people because the entire chain of events uh, goes like this. So you get the kidney disease because you have the type two diabetes. Um, so if you get rid of the type two diabetes, then of course the, uh, you, you won't get the kidney disease, right? And for the type two diabetes, if you lose weight, you won't get the type two diabetes because they're very, very tightly, uh, correlated. So if you have the problem being, uh, sort of, uh, obesity, which leads to type two diabetes, which leads to kidney disease, then it doesn't do very much good to treat the people at the end when they have their kidney disease with dialysis and drugs and all this sort of stuff you do very very little good it's just like if you have a car and you never change the oil in the car and then all of a sudden it breaks down and they say okay well you need to change this and change that it's like that's why don't you just change the oil so it's the same thing you got to look at the root cause and fix it so that goes not just for kidney disease, but in fact, most of the diseases of the metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is this sort of cluster of risk factors, which includes obesity, abdominal obesity and cholesterol and high blood pressure and type two diabetes. But it's a huge contributor to uh, not just the kidney disease, but also to cancer, to heart disease, to strokes, type uh, two diabetes is the leading cause of blindness, is the leading cause of amputations, non-traumatic amputations, um, and you know nerve damage and all these sorts of things. So um, obesity medicine turns out to Sort of cut across, uh, you know, most of what we do in medicine today. And the funny part was that nobody was focused on it. That is, the doctors had sort of abandoned this entire field, which was so crucial to the health of the population. To people like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and Optify. like you know, they're fine. They're but they're commercial interests. They're not doctors. Like, where were the doctors? It, it was sort of ridiculous that the root cause of a lot of this disease which nobody denies like everybody knows that you know if you, if you weigh 400 pounds and you get type 2 diabetes that's going to lead to a heart attack right so everybody knew that like it's this is not something I was discovering out of the blue but then it's like okay well if doctors knew that why don't doctors treat it like that's the that's the totally bizarre part and that's where I really got interested in the question of, obesity, and so on. And then um, realizing that the reason a lot of doctors had sort of abandoned the field was because uh, what they were taught was almost, I think, entirely wrong. Their treatments were almost entirely wrong. So they just sort of threw up their hands and said, forget it. And you see this because there's tons, like there's lots of doctors who are overweight, who have type 2 diabetes. It's like, you know, that old saying, physician heal thyself. It's like, well, they couldn't because they didn't understand the disease. And they sort of said, well, it's all about calories. And that was sort of the big downfall of uh, sort of obesity medicine is when we sort of said that, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's just about the calories. That sort of idea is uh, quite, um, quite wrong. And that's what I talked about in my book, The Obesity Code*, or what causes um, weight gain. Because if you don't understand the cause of the weight gain, you're not going to get somebody to lose weight. Um, so understanding the cause of the weight gain treating it and that's what led to uh sort of success in reversing the type 2 diabetes which will down the line sort of 15 years down the line prevent kidney disease so that i don't have to see these people
0: well that's amazing so i just want to dig in a little bit into the causes of obesity as you see them like you know there's a lot of debate um still the calories in calories out model is pervasive on social media and then others like yourself argue that obesity is really a hormonal issue can you kind of like Describe the debate, if you will, you know, on on both sides of the coin, and then why you see obesity as being more of a hormonal problem than one governed by calories in, calories out.
1: Yeah, the whole problem of of calories in, calories out comes down to um, the distinction between sort of proximate causes and ultimate causes. That is to say that approximate cause, proximate means the sort of step right before. Um, and the ultimate cause is what, like a root cause, like what ultimately causes the problem. So it's easier to frame the problem if you think about money, for example, because everybody is very familiar with money. So you say, okay, uh, if everybody wants to be rich. And it's like, you might say, for example, that, oh, hey, um, how do you get rich? And it's like, well, that's easy. You have more money in than money out, right? So more money is coming in than coming out. And you're going to get rich. Okay, it's like somebody will tell you, okay, well, you're really stupid. That's really stupid. Everybody knows that. That's essentially the same problem. Like the question of how to get rich is the question of how do you get more money in versus money out. But see, this is the whole same thing. If you replace the word calories with, say, money, you see how utterly ridiculous this whole calories argument is. Because it's like, of course I know it's about money in versus money out. The question is, how do you get more money in? And how do you get less money out? So, you know, that's the proximate cause. It doesn't give you any insight into how to actually do it. And then you get problems like, for example, people will say, Well, you know, health has nothing to do with money in or money out, therefore it's irrelevant. It's like, no, it's very relevant because it affects how, you know, you know, how whether you can work, whether you can, you know, go out and do a job, whether you can go out of the house. It has a huge to do Deal with it. So if you become sick, for example, you might become bankrupt because there's more expenses, more medical bills, and so on. So that's the sort of ultimate cause. So getting sick causes you to become bankrupt or poor. It's actually one of the leading causes of bankruptcy, um, uh, medical illness. So, you know, that's the that's the ultimate cause versus the proximate cause. So if you focus simply on approximate causes, you'll never be able to um, solve the problem. Uh, it's the same thing for calories in, calories out. Ultimately, it is, you know, it is entirely true that it's calories in, calories out, but it's not useful in any way. That is, why are calories in going up? And why are calories out going down? That's the real problem. Not that they are going up or they are going down. That's that's sort of irrelevant, right? And the two things to focus on in calories in, calories out is for calories in, it's, it's hunger. Like what makes you hungry? What makes you less hungry? That kind of thing. For the calories out, everybody assumes that it's exercise, but exercise is almost an irrelevant part of the number of calories that you expend every day. So the whole hormonal, you know, theory of obesity takes into account the whole calories problem, but it goes much further and it it expands it much better. So you can understand what the actual cause of the problem is versus just saying it's all about calories and calories out. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very stupid problem, just like saying, you know, it's if you put more money in, you're going to get rich. Well, what about all those professional play baseball players and whatever who went bankrupt? They were getting millions of dollars. The problem is the, the money was going out very fast, right? It's the same thing in terms of calories. So if you say, oh, I'm going to eat only 1,000 calories. Well, The question is what happens to the calories out part of the equation because it's a combination, right? So if you eat 1,000 calories, what happens to the calories out? Well, we know exactly what happens when you do a standard sort of low-fat, low-calorie diet. The calories out plummets, right? So if you start out eating 2,000 calories in, 2,000 calories out, you drop your calories in to 1,200. Your calories out drops it to 1,200. Okay, are you losing weight? No, you're not. But everybody assumes that, oh, hey, if you reduce your calories in, you're going to lose weight. No, you don't, because your calories out is going to drop. And what's the most important part of calories out? It's basal metabolic rate. How many calories your liver uses, your brain uses, how much heat you generate, body heat you generate. That is what is the most important part of the calories out you know, section of the equation. And it's not under your conscious control. You can't decide, I'm going to generate more body heat. Right. And this is the problem is that when you frame the question as simply calories and calories out, which is, you know, what you eat, like the p- stuff you put in your mouth and will c- calories out is exercise, then you think it's it's entirely somebody's conscious decision whether they want to lose weight or not. But it's not. You can't decide to be more hungry. You can't be, decide to be less hungry. You can't decide to burn more calories and you can't decide to burn less calories. That's all under hormonal control. How hungry do you get? It all depends on hormones. For example, everybody thinks it's to do with the last time you ate, but it's not. If you look at, for example, studies of circadian rhythm, so you know if you take a large number of people and you uh, simply say, um, you know when are people most hungry and less hungry It follows a circadian rhythm. So 8 a.m. is the time of the day that people on average are the least hungry. And 8 p.m. is the time of the day, uh, 7 or 8 p.m. is the time of the day when people are the most hungry. So 8 a.m. is also the time of the day where people have, on average, um, the longest time since they ate. So most people have been going 12 hours without eating and yet are less, the least hungry. So it's not simply a matter of, oh, hey, you, know, you ate a few hours ago, therefore you're hungry or not hungry. At 8 p.m., people probably ate a few hours ago, you know, lunchtime, 12, 12 o'clock or whatever. They ate a few hours ago, and yet they're the most hungry they are during the day. So it's a hormonal issue. So hunger is a hormonal issue, and basal metabolic rate is all covered, again, by hormones. So hormones mm-hmm. controls the entire thing. So this whole calories in, calories out debate is, you know, the people who, who, who talk about calories in, calories out, like I look at them, and I think, boy, you guys just don't get it at all, <laughs> do you? Like You guys are stupid like crazy. If you think that's the problem, you think it's all about money in, money out, right? It's like, oh, if you spend less, you're going to be a millionaire. It's like, if you don't drink Starbucks a day, you're going to be a millionaire. It's like, no, you won't because it's the balance, right? It's both of them. And both of them, the essential problem is hormonal. That is, What you eat during a day depends entirely on if you feel hungry or you don't feel hungry. It's it's really, really hard to not eat when you're hungry. And this is one of the problems we know with uh, weight loss with a standard sort of diet is that you are more hungry after having lost that weight and your basal metabolic rate goes down after you've lost that weight. And, um, so if, if you lose weight, so they've done studies on this, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you take people, put them on a sort of a standard sort of calorie restricted diet, and then measure them a year later after they've lost the weight there, they, you can measure their ghrelin, which is a hunger hormone, and it's much higher than it was before. That is people are actually more hungry, like physiologically more hungry than they were before. And they are burning less calories. Their basal metabolic rate went down. Well, if you're more hungry and spending less on your caloric expenditure, what do you think is going to happen? Well, you're going to regain that weight. And that's the whole problem because people focused on the calories and didn't focus on the root cause of what that whole problem was, which is the hormonal issues that led to the hunger and led to the basal metabolic rate.
0: So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is it's the calories in, calories out. Um, you know, the wisdom that uh, weight loss is as simple as you know energy balance. It's a proximal truth, but it's it's almost an error by omission because it's terrible advice, especially for somebody living in the real world.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's focusing so closely on the the sort of actual mechanism of calories in, calories out, but making the wrong assumption that calories in is all about willpower and calories out is all about willpower. You can't will yourself to be less hungry. It's impossible. You can't will yourself to burn for, for your liver to burn less calories. Like it doesn't work. Right. And this is the whole problem as uh, you know, about fat shaming is because as people gain weight, then people think, oh, well, it's because you had no willpower. It's like you can't will these things. And that's this is all due to those calories in, calories out people. Those people who say it's all about willpower, and it's usually you know a bunch of guys and you know bodybuilders and stuff. Oh, it's all about willpower, right? And It's like, uh, no, you, you got the whole the whole problem wrong. These calories in, calories out people. So they're you know I think directly responsible for this whole epidemic of sort of fat shaming, where they people are ashamed to be obese because it's it's linked. People think it's the same thing as having no willpower or it's a character defect. It's it's not. It's a hormonal issue. If you got the wrong information, you're going to gain weight. Again, it's the same thing. Think about it this way. In the 70s, there was very little obesity. We know that. It's a fact. Now there's a lot of obesity. Is the entire obesity epidemic simply due to a collective global loss of willpower? It's like, I don't think so. It's like, that would be really crazy if it was. But, you know, again, look at the people on the show, The Biggest Loser. It's like they have lots of willpower. Like you see them sort of running and throwing up and all this sort of stuff. Clearly, they don't lack willpower. It's not a character defect it's the fact that they got this sort of wrong information about what it is they should be eating, you know, their what, what they should be doing and, you know, cutting their fat and all that. And, you know, a lot of times their metabolic rates have been uh, sort of wrecked by a lot of these uh, low-calorie diets and so on. So, uh, you know, that's where I think getting the right information. And like I said, the hormonal theory of obesity, that is, it's, you know, Obesity is mainly a hormonal problem, so therefore fix the hormones. And then it, it, it doesn't it doesn't contradict the sort of calories in, calories out model. It's it it takes it further. That's why I think that people say a calorie is a calorie, for example. It's like, okay, but that's stupid. That's not the question I asked. Did I ask you if a calorie is a calorie? No, the question we have is: are all calories equally fattening? Because all calories have different hormonal effects. So are they all equally fattening? That is, is 100 calories of cookies as fattening as 100 calories of broccoli? And the answer is obviously no. So the calories and calories people, calories in calories out people or the calories a calorie people, they're like, oh, I I look at them, I think, my God, you're really, really stupid. If you think that, you know, a big glass, a big gulp of Coke is as fattening as a big salad with grilled salmon. Like, if you think that, then that's why people get the wrong idea, because they think that they can drink the Coke, skip their salad, and be fine. Uh, It's not fine, because the minute that you put those foods in your mouth, there is a completely different hormonal response, okay? So, for example, you eat bread and jam, you eat it. Your your glucose spikes way up, your insulin spikes way up. You eat a couple of eggs, glucose stays completely flat, insulin does very little. So, a completely different hormonal response from one to the other. And yet, you want to pretend that that has no impact on the body. Like, what are you, stupid, right? That doesn't even make any sense. We know we can measure these different hormonal responses to foods. And yet we pretend they make no difference. And then the, the what always gets me is that the calories in, calories out people accuse everybody else of being unscientific, right? It's like, okay. It's like there's no physiology in the calories story. It's it's a horrible, horrible story.
0: Well, I guess what what they would say, and you know, I'm curious your thoughts, you know, like how you would respond to somebody saying, Well, as long as you're eating under your maintenance calories and you're counting your calories, for example, then you can have a cup of Coke every day and still, you know, continue to lose weight.
1: Um, This is the problem, right? So people have done this where they measure their caloric expenditure. They say, okay, I'm spending 2000 calories a day. Therefore, I'm going to eat 1700 and I will lose weight. That does never happen because when you eat the 1,700 calories of a low-fat, like if you eat it properly, then yes, you can because there's an overlap between the hormonal response and the calories, right? And if you're e- eating, you know, a standard food, if you eat less of, like if everybody's eating the same exact food, like say you take a shake and one person drinks You know, twice the amount of the other, then the hormonal effect is going to be double because the the composition is exactly the same. But there's an overlap here. So if you reduce your calories, so you say you measure your calories, you're at 2,000 calories, that's what you're burning. Then you say, okay, therefore I'm going to eat 1,500 calories a day of a low-fat, low-calorie diet. I should lose a pound a week. It never happens because the effect of doing that like if you eat a low-fat, low-calorie diet, you're keeping your insulin high, for example, and your calories are lowered, but your insulin level, uh, insulin effect is still the same. What happens is that your body starts to spend 1,500 calories. Hmm. Okay, we've we, we've done this for, we've known this for a hundred years. Okay, so you know, they have studies back in 1917 where they did this exact study. They measured the basal metabolic rate. They put people on a calorie restriction. Then they measured their basal metabolic rate again. So it was done at the Rockefeller Institute. 1917, they they, they cut people's calories by about a third. Basal metabolic rate went down by a third. Ansel Keys' study, so the Minnesota starvation study, they called it a starvation study, but it wasn't. It was actually a calorie restriction study. So they put people on a very high-carb diet, cut them down to about 1,500 calories a day. Guess what? Their basal metabolic rate dropped to about 1,500 a day. So this is the problem when you say, okay, I'm going to measure myself. I'm at 2,000. I'll drop to 1,500. Therefore, I will lose weight. The, the, The key assumption that's incorrect is that basal metabolic rate is stable. Again, we've known this for at least 25 years. The amount of calories that you spend day in and day out changes. It can go up Can go down. So Rudy Leibel showed this in 1994. So this is like, you know, almost 25 years ago. Like, this is not new stuff, guys. So, what he did is he made people gain weight. He took people, he had a standard shake, he made them gain weight. Basal metabolic rate went up. That is, your body is taking in more calories and it is burning more calories. Then he made them go back down to their usual weight, and their basal metabolic rate went back down. Then he made them lose weight, and the basal metabolic rate went down. So here's the thing. If calories in goes up, calories out goes up. As calories in goes down, calories out goes down. So it's like, why do you think it's so hard to lose weight or even gain weight? Because if you take in more calories than, you, than, than before, your body actually tries to burn it off. And this is what they showed in those studies of The Biggest Loser as they dropped their their calories in, their calories out went way down. So one guy went from like 3,600 calories he was burning per day to like 1,800. And it's like, okay, that's why he can't sustain that weight loss. Because those two things, calories in, calories out, are not independent variables. Okay, so as they go up and down together. So if you just think about money, for example, if the amount of money comes in, but by, but because it's coming in more, you spend more. Well, you're not going to get wealthy because you're going to make more money, but you're going to spend more money, right? So those two go up and down together, and they're so tightly linked that it's very hard to break it unless you correct the sort of hormonal responses. And this is the whole, uh, the whole, you know, problem is that that calories in, calories out, are you know people assume that they move independently of each other and the other thing is they think that they can control calories in and control calories out you don't have that much control over it so those are two huge huge errors of the sort of calories in calories out method it's so basic that like a high school student would be able mm-hmm. to see through it right and 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 here's the thing that's that always sort of boggles my mind The calorie restriction, so cut 500 calories a day, you'll lose a pound a week. That advice has been around for, I don't know, 30 years. And if you look at studies of weight loss, um, you know, mostly using this sort of advice, the success rate of being able to sustain a weight loss is about like 1%. So that sort of advice has about a 99% chance of failure. Wow it's like so why would we give people advice that we know ahead of time is going to fail 99% of the time like if this whole calorie restriction thing worked i'd be the first one to prescribe it because i don't really care what you know you know my my duty is to the patient. If he loses weight, that diabetes goes away. He doesn't get kidney disease. So my duty is to make them lose weight. If that calorie restriction, low-fat, low-calorie diet worked, I'd be the first guy out there telling people they could do it. But it doesn't work. And that's the sort of truth of it. We've all done it. It doesn't work for anybody. But the problem is with those calories in, calories out people, and there are so many of them, is that the advice doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, they say, well, the problem is the patient, not the problem? Is the advice? The advice sucked, right? That's what the that's what any logical person would say is the advice sucked. But instead, they say no, 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 no. The advice is really good, but you suck. Hmm. So instead, they're putting the blame onto the victim. It's it's basically blaming the victim. It's just no different than a, a rape victim and people saying, well, she deserved it. Well, this is the same thing because that's the person who's suffering. So the person who has the problem with of being overweight, of being obese, they're the ones who are who are getting all the problems. And yet most of the medical establishment, the calories in, calories out people are like saying, okay, you're this victim, but you're we're blaming you for it. You did it to yourself. It's like, okay, that's so unfair. It's unfair when it when it's a problem of rape, for example, and it's unfair when it's a problem Of obesity, because they're the victims. We should be treating them with better advice. Instead, we turn around and we simply blame them for it and say, "You know, you have no willpower. You didn't exercise. You didn't eat the right foods." Uh, You know, the problem is when you speak to all the a lot of people, they are eating the right foods and they are doing uh, trying to exercise, and uh, you know, they just don't understand why it's not working. And it's it's like it's not working because the advice that we're giving is so Bad.
0: Yeah, I um, you know, I don't know how much you dabble on Instagram, but uh, a large portion of my following and the people who listen to this podcast are Instagram users, and Instagram users tend to be a bit younger than Twitter users. And one of the things that I always encounter when I post about, um, you know, the kinds of foods that uh, people should really eat to help regulate their hunger. A a common response that I get is that, you know, food doesn't have a moral value. You know, you can't say that a food is good or that a food is bad. Instead, the advice is always to, you know, eat everything in moderation, moderate your, you know, your portion size. And that's going to create a less obsessive relationship with food. There's this concern that by painting foods as either good or bad, um, you know, like the, the Coke or the donut or the muffin that we're creating essentially an obsession, uh, an obsessive relationship with food that's going to predispose one to eating disorders and things like that. And that always makes me scratch my head. And I, I would love for you to comment on this because.
1: Yeah, the I mean, problem is that some foods are fattening and some foods are not right. And that's the bottom line, right? So if you look at um, a food and, and this is not like like you could talk to your grandmother and she'd have told you the same thing, right? It's like uh, certain foods, like a donut, for example, or Coke, are going to have a huge effect on insulin and insulin resistance, right? And that's the main driver. So my whole hypothesis is that insulin, insulin resistance is the main driver of obesity. And certain foods have more insulin effect and more effect on insulin resistance. And and that is not Deniable, right? So if you say, okay, if I eat a slice of white bread, glucose goes way up, insulin goes way up. If you eat an egg, glucose does not, and insulin does not. Like that's not for debate. So There are certain foods that have more of a hormonal effect, insulin effect, and some that have less, right? So they all have different effects on our body. So if you were to talk to your grandmother, she'd have told you some foods are fattening, some aren't. What foods are fattening? Well, she would have told you like candy is fattening, sugar is fattening, and so on. And that's just, you know, that's where where this whole calories in, calories out, people. All calories are equal. All calories are not equally fattening. And that's a simple truth. So we're not trying to make a moral value. Like we're not saying it's good or it's bad. It's like the simple truth is that some foods are more fattening than others. And that's that's it. Because they have different hormonal effects on our body. And our body's hormones determines how much fat we're going to gain or lose. And um, it comes down more to than just the foods, of course. It comes down to how often we eat. And that's one of the things that I think hadn't been discussed a lot before. Uh, you know, and that's where we did a lot of work with people in terms of intermittent fasting and in our uh, IDM program, the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Um, that's one of the sort of things that we did a few years ago that almost nobody was talking about at the time. Is that it was about not just the foods that you ate, but how often you're eating. If you're eating six times a day, it's really bad because six times a day, and and, and again, this is, if you take a food that's a mixture of uh, macronutrients, insulin will go up. If you eat, insulin will go up, and it'll tell your body to store some of that food energy. Okay, so that's what it's supposed to do, because when you're not eating, then you're going to need to. To to take some of that stored food energy out. So if every time you eat, insulin goes up, tells your body to store fat. If you're doing that six times a day, you're telling your body to store fat. That's worse than if you tell your body to do it once a day. And that's the whole point of intermittent fasting is to reduce the numbers of times we're stimulating the hormonal pathways for fat gain, because fat is not good or bad. Fat is a store of food energy that's what it is when you get too much of it it's bad because you get type 2 diabetes you have too little of it it's also too bad that's known as starvation right so body fat is 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 you know has no moral value for sure but you can't get away from the scientific truth that some foods are more fattening than others so should you limit the amount of donuts you eat absolutely should you limit the amount of kale you eat probably not like whoever gets fat eating kale, whoever gets fat eating broccoli, like nobody ever does, but you can take the same amount of calories and it will be different. That's the whole point. All foods are not equally fattening. And that's not, uh, that's just, that's just the truth of it. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, don't, don't put a moral value on it. Just say like, look, it, it is what it is. Like, I can't help it, uh, you know, and for people who want to gain weight, Those are the foods that will tell them to eat.
0: Well said. Uh, Real quick, I mean, I I definitely want to transition to fasting, which you alluded to. Um, What is your standpoint on uh, fruit?
1: See, the thing about fruit is that it contains um, fructose, which is sort of the sugar that you find in fruit and therefore can be fattening. Um, and people say, well, you know, but it's a natural food and it's sort of, it is, and it isn't because if you look at the, um, the fruits from when I grew up in the seventies, um, they were sort of nasty compared to the fruits you get today. Like you didn't get strawberries all day The, the you know, instead of, um, white peaches, which are nice and sweet, you get the yellow peaches, which are a little bit tangy you have a lot of sweeter apples, honey crisp and sort of than than you had before. You have a lot of uh, golden pineapple like nobody ever ate pineapple before cuz it was really tangy and tart. Uh, now you have these golden pineapples which are really sweet. So there's been a change in the fruits that we eat in that they're much much sweeter. Uh, on the other hand, they do contain fiber and other things. So they're sort of they're not they're not great but they're not that bad either. So they're sort of in the middle there. Um, you know, when, when a lot of these studies were done, this is why kids never ate fruit before, because they were mostly kind of sour or bland or tangy. Um, and now I have no trouble getting my kids to eat fruit. They love fruit because everything is super, super sweet. Um, so, so I'm sort of on the fence about fruit. I think that, you know, you have to be careful with some of the fruits because they're just so sweet and they don't call it like nature's candy for nothing, but you got to realize that it's, it's not something that was all that available. Like you have, you know, those white cherries now, which are very, very sweet. And the strawberries from California, which are really, really sweet and in season sort of all year long. And you have, you know, so many different fruits than when, um, when I was growing up, that are just a lot sweeter. And if it's sweeter, you know it's got sugar, right? There's no, there's no way around it. It's natural sugar, yes, but it's still sugar. So again, if you look at the effect on the body when you take in the fruit sugar, if you know if you eat one peach, and you know in the 70s it just had like a third of the sugar of the peach that you're eating today, then you're taking three times as much sugar. I mean, there's just no, you know, there's just no way around that right? So uh, I'd be a little bit careful if you're trying to lose weight with with
0: with fruit. I'm sure very few people in the Western world that are overweight or obese became overweight or obese due to fruit consumption. But if you are overweight, obese, struggling with insulin resistance, it's probably a good idea to moderate your consumption of especially sweet fruit.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like, I don't think it's the biggest uh, culprit in the book. Like, Like you say, I don't think people, you know, ate too much fruit and got obese. I think there's a lot of other things that are way worse, like, you know, like most of the other things with added sugars, most of the processed foods and, you know, that kind of thing. But it's not the best either. So if you're, you know, if you're not trying to lose weight, then I don't see anything wrong, particularly with taking some fruit. But if you're trying to lose it, yeah, I'd be a bit, I'd cut it back.
0: So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about fasting because you are one of the go-to um, experts in the field. You've obviously written many – you've written a, a wonderful book on fasting and you contribute to Medium quite frequently about the topic. So what is the the method of fasting that um, you advocate for? We already started talking a little bit about um, meal frequency. Are you um, – do you basically advocate for fewer meals as opposed to more? Seems to seems yeah. to be the case.
1: Yeah, I think that the whole point is to – sort of understand that fasting, it used to be a very, very dirty word. So when I started about five years ago, so what happened was that we have this program called the Intensive Dietary Management Program, or IDM program. And uh, a few years ago, I thought, you know, I, I was using low carb for type 2 diabetics mostly. So is, this is my patients that I see in the office that I'm trying to get to reverse their type 2 diabetes or to lose weight. Um, because reversing their people's type 2 diabetes will sort of those are the highest risk people. So, you know, you, you really want to focus on them. So I was using a low carbohydrate approach and it was only modestly successful. And I thought, well, you know, I talked to the, some of the patients and they're like, you know, I talked to them about low carb diets and it's like, these are like 60, 70 year old people and some of them didn't speak English that well and it's clear they weren't getting it like you know they're eating rice and noodles and calling it a low carb diet and I'm like okay that's not really low carb so then I thought well we have to do something that's a little bit sort of simpler so then I thought okay well what about fasting and I thought whoa that's a really bad idea right cuz everybody knows how bad skipping meals is and then I thought okay well this is sort of strange because you know on the one hand I I you know five years ago, even I, or six years ago, I even I thought fasting was a bad idea, but then I thought, but where's the evidence for that, right? And, and, you know, from a physiologic standpoint, why do people think it's so bad, right? So then I went back into the literature, I looked at it, and I realized that there actually isn't anything wrong with it. So people said you would put you into starvation mode. That was, turns out, completely untrue. They're going to say, they say, oh, it burns all the muscle. It turns out that I think is completely untrue. Um, and in fact, it was the exact opposite. Fasting had these huge benefits. People say, oh, you're going to be so hungry. You're going to be forced to, you know, stuff muffins in your mouth. And again, that wasn't true. In fact, hunger actually went down with fasting and basal metabolic rate went up. And I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. So, you know, here's the the two big problems of long-term weight loss, which is hunger and basal metabolic rate. So if you do a low fat, low calorie diet, hunger goes up. Metabolic rate goes down, you regain the weight. But fasting does the opposite. It actually decreases hunger and increases basal metabolic rate. So it's like, whoa, this is a very effective treatment. Hmm. So then I started doing it. And, and that's where we started to see some sort of ridiculously um, good stories, like people who had, and, and we wrote these up in, in a case series that was published in the British Medical Journal. You know, we had people with 25 years of type 2 diabetes. Who would reverse it in like 20 days.
0: Is, is it easier to fast than to adhere to a very low carbohydrate, hypocaloric, low calorie diet?
1: I think it's actually much easier um, to do the fasting than the sort of low calorie diets because the thing is that people assume that um, fat, like eating something is going to decrease hunger. Um, but it doesn't, and that's mm-hmm. why we have appetizers. So if you eat something, so I had this experience just, just two days ago, um, you know, I was out at with friends, so I was actually completely full for dinner. Like I could have easily skipped dinner and been fine. Cause I was actually completely full. Um, but it was, you know, we we're going out for dinner. So therefore I was like, I'm going to have something just to be sociable. And as soon as I started eating, I ate the full meal. <laughs> right. And it's like, and I knew this happens, right? So I, I didn't care particularly because I know that this is what happens. But I think, you know, the first time it happened, I thought, this is strange because I could have actually gone, you know, just done some work on to bed and I would have been fine. I wouldn't have been hungry at all. But as soon as I started eating, I started getting hungry. And then as, as you think about it, it actually makes sense. That's the point of an appetizer and a mousse-bouche, right? A mousse-bouche is some a small, very appetizing thing to so something you eat to increase your hunger right an appetizer increases your appetite it's not like oh you take an appetizer and it dulls your appetite so you don't want to eat again uh-huh. right so this is the thing when you start eating there's this whole cascade of things that happens you start to salivate you start to do this and that and then you can eat so so you know when you fast you actually Put that into reverse because at first it's hard. You have to get over that hunger part. Then the hunger actually starts to diminish. And so many people come back to my office and say, you know, I I actually can't eat that much anymore. It's like my stomach shrank. And it's like, well, I don't think your stomach physically shrank. But what has happened is that your, your, you know, hunger signaling, the ghrelin, for example, Is going lower. So you see this in uh, studies of fasting and ghrelin. So, ghrelin is the hunger hormone. You can actually measure what happens over 24 hours of fasting. So, there's three peaks of ghrelin. So, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there's a little peak of ghrelin. But what's interesting to me is what happens when you skip breakfast, skip lunch, and skip dinner. And they've done studies on this too. Ghrelin initially goes up, and then when you don't eat, it just falls back down to baseline. So, Everybody assumes that you're just going to keep getting hungry and hungry and hungry. So if you think back to a time when you missed lunch, um, what happens is that at one o'clock, you're pretty hungry. But by five o'clock, your level of hunger is actually the same, whether you ate lunch or didn't eat lunch. And this is very powerful knowledge. Because if you know that the hunger just comes as a wave and then goes away, it's like then now you're starting to control it. When you start doing longer days, uh, like, f- you know, out to four days, five days of fasting, you see that the hunger actually starts to disappear. Gorillin actually starts to go down after multiple days. So it's, it's really interesting that, you know, it's almost the opposite of what people thought was true. People thought that, oh, if you eat six times a day, you're going to keep your hunger in check. It's like, no, you're going to actually do much worse because you're going to appetize yourself six times a day. Mm-hmm and and again it 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 you know when you think about it that way it starts to make a little bit more sense because it's like it's like uh, you know once you start something it's really really hard to stop it until it's finished right it's like my son in a bath like you can't get him into the bath but when he's in the bath you can't get him out of the bath right because once you're in it it's really there's this sort of inertia so if you don't eat there's this sort of inertia that you don't need to eat. And if you are eating all the time, like what's easier? Skipping lunch or eating a little bit of lunch so that you appetize yourself and then exerting willpower to stop yourself, right? And imagine doing that six times a day. So this is this whole thing of, oh, eat six small meals a day, eat eight small meals a day. It's like, okay, so now you're gonna take enough so that you get hungry. And then physically stop yourself from eating anymore, and do that six times a day. It's like, okay, why would you do that? Like, why wouldn't you just eat fewer times in a day and eat until you're full, right? That's what they did in the 70s, right? So again, one of the things that in the NHANES study, which is a large American survey of uh, sort of dietary habits, Um, In the 70s, people ate three times a day. In 2004, it's like six times a day. And, you know, clearly there's a lot less obesity when you're eating fewer times a day. And it makes physiologic sense. And it's, it it makes sort of all sense. If you're going to go through all the trouble of preparing something, you're going to want to eat. Like, you know, why, why would you want to do that all the time? Like, why would people want to, do that to themselves. Why don't you just skip it, and then let that hunger sort of pass, and then you'll be fine. So, controlling the hunger is the main thing.
0: For people that are um, doing regular resistance training, I think there there might be a fear that uh, our muscles are going to atrophy, or um, you know, in, in in other ways, our body composition might um, falter due to a slowing of metabolism. From not eating you're yeah, saying so this, that's the, this outdated that's the advice. Other,
1: oh totally outdated like if you look at studies of fasting so again if you study somebody who fasts uh, you measure the basal metabolic rate at time zero and you measure them after four days of not eating Then you may the basal metabolic rate actually increases by about 10 percent wow and Again, it's pure physiology. Like we've known about the physiology for 50 years. What happens when you don't eat is that insulin falls, but other hormones go up. And these hormones are called counter regulatory hormones. And that includes noradrenaline, sympathetic nerve activation, and um, growth hormone. So what happens is that those hormones take your. You know, stored food, which is glycogen and fat, and pushes, turns it into glucose, pushes out into the blood. So, if your noradrenaline is going up, you're maintaining your basal metabolic rate. Same thing with growth hormone. Because growth hormone is going up, you're going to maintain your lean mass. So, when you look at studies of alternate daily fasting, many of them show that one, you don't lose lean mass. To the same rate. In fact, so people, when you compare calorie-restricted diets to intermittent fasting diets, people assume that lean mass will do better with just chronic calorie restriction. Hmm. They're wrong. It's it's about four times better with the alternate daily fasting group. And this so the maintenance of this basal metabolic rate is again another huge advantage. So you know, if you're thinking about the, the physiology, so your, your adrenaline's going, noradrenaline's going up, you're activating your sympathetic nervous system, which is a general activator, and you're increasing growth hormone, that means your basal metabolic rate is going to stay high, you're going to maintain your lean mass, and then what we said before about ghrelin, which is less hunger. So less hunger, maintaining your metabolic rate, and maintaining your lean mass. It's like, okay, this is sort of a no-brainer. Which one would you rather do? Would you rather do calorie restriction, which we've done for for sort of like 30 years? If it fails in 99% of the time, we know that hunger increases and we know that basal metabolic rate goes down. This is the advice we give people, right? As opposed to intermittent fasting, which is going to maintain your lean mass, maintain your metabolic rate and decrease hunger. It's like, okay... You get an idea of why one is so much more successful than the other, yet the fasting has practically been forgotten about for you know until I started talking about it in 2012. It was it's ridiculous because the physiologic benefits like the are just so much more. Like it's it's, it's just so much more advantageous.
0: Well, the advice to eat less is probably also at odds with corporate interest. You know, I mean, you've got cereal companies and snack food companies coming at you left and right, telling you to eat more frequently throughout the day.
1: Yeah, because, uh, you know, and that was one, uh, you know, I don't think it was necessarily deliberate. It was sort of, it came out of this sort of low fat, this sort of fat phobia that people had. Oh, you can't eat fat. So people were eating a lot of refined carbs and therefore they were getting hungry again. So you're eating, toast and jam in the morning, you're gonna get hungry at ten thirty. That's just the way it is. If you eat bacon and eggs, you're not gonna get hungry at ten thirty. So then people thought that they should eat at ten thirty and twelve and two thirty. And and it became sort of seeped into our culture. And of course the food companies rushed to meet that demand for snacks and muffins and all this stuff. And you see it in the kids, right? The kids, they have to have a mid morning snack. They have to have an after school snack. They have to have snacks on the bus. It's like why? Like 30, 40 years ago, nobody thought it was important to do that. And the kids turned out fine. Like, it's not necessary. Everybody thinks you have to have a healthy snack. It's like, if you're eating six or seven times a day, you're telling your body six or seven times a day to store fat because that's the instructions you just told it to do. So the whole, um, you know, there's a lot of vested interest, but I think it came out of a lot of sort of misguided uh, science, like people didn't understand it a lot. So therefore, as the food companies went to, to, you know, as people demanded these snacks, they, they made them and they were happy to feed them. And then of course they advertised for that reason. Right. Well,
0: I don't want to run out of time before I get to ask you specifically about your fasting protocol. What is the minimum amount of time needed to reap some of these hormonal benefits that you're talking about? Um, and also if you could touch on autophagy, what that is and, you know, whether or not, well, essentially how to activate it, whether or not we're activating it with the uh, a daily fast.
1: Yeah. So you got to remember that um, fasting is really part of a sort of natural cycle. So this is what people had always known. That's why they have the word breakfast, right? So you're supposed to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner. So you're eating from say 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then you're supposed to fast from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. That's 12 hours, right? And that's where the word breakfast comes in. So you break your fast. That means you have to be fasting in order to break it. So 12 hours used to be the sort of standard. If you look at studies today, most of them indicate that people are eating for almost 15 hours of the day. So in fact, instead of uh, sort of a mix of 12 and 12, they're eating sort of uh, constantly throughout the day. That is, if you start eating at 8 a.m., you don't stop until about 11 p.m. <laughs> on average. Okay, that's on average. That's wow. the scary part. So people are eating basically throughout the entire day, never stopping. So therefore, instead of giving their bodies a break and giving it the instructions, so when you don't eat, you give your body instructions to start pulling out some of that food energy, start burning some of that. Body fat, right? So twelve hours was sort of the baseline that they did in the 70s, and guess what? There's just a lot of there's there's just not very much obesity, no matter what people ate. People were eating ice cream then too, right? They just weren't eating constantly. So twelve hours is sort of a baseline. Um, if you're trying to lose weight, then you can push it out to 16 hours or 24 hours. So 16 hours is a sort of 16-8 diet which is uh, eating for eight hours of the day and fasting for 16 hours. And the um, 24 hours a day is sort of a one meal a day sort of idea. So if you go from, say, dinner to dinner, it's uh, sort of uh, 24 hours or 23 hours of fasting. Um, And some people do it every day, but most often people do it sort of a couple of times a week. And then autophagy is this other very, very interesting um process which is getting a lot of attention because it's a cellular sort of recycling process that's what um, it's been described in the nobel prize lectures because in 2016 the nobel prize for medicine went to one of the early uh, researchers in autophagy and what it is it's it's cellular recycling what happens is when your protein intake goes down because it's controlled mostly by uh, dietary protein Uh, which uh, activates something called mTOR, Um, that is what um, triggers sort of autophagy. When you have very little protein, mTOR drops, and autophagy goes up, and your body actually starts to break down um, these sort of subcellular organs. Um, So it breaks down protein uh, because you're not getting protein, right? And it, it, it recycles that because then um, the proteins that it does need, it will rebuild when you start eating again. So this is uh, called autophagy. And th- the studies are not always there, but most people think that um, if you're not eating a huge amount of protein, then you can get there with sort of fasting in the sort of uh, 18, 24, 32, 36 hour range, right? So it's, it's, it's a bit nebulous because if you're eating a lot of protein and your mTOR is very, very high, then it's going to take a little while to come down. If you're not eating a lot of protein or if you're eating more vegetable protein, so vegetable proteins are generally less bioavailable uh, because animals, we're closer to animals. So when we eat animal proteins, we absorb a lot of more of it versus plant proteins. Less, there's less bioavailability. Anyway, so if you're eating a lot of plant proteins, for example, your mTOR is not going to be as high. Therefore, it's going to take less time for you to drop down into that range where you're going to activate the autophagy. The reason people are so excited about it is because it's a sort of uh, rejuvenation process where you're going to break down sort of old protein and replace them with new protein. And this is one of the things that we found in our program, which is extremely interesting, is that a lot of weight loss programs, people have this big, you know, big flabby skin that's left over and they go for skin removal surgery. You know, we've treated thousands of patients. We actually have never sent anybody for skin removal surgery because hopefully we think uh, this is just conjecture. We think that by doing more of the fasting, we do more sort of into those longer fasts. We trigger the autophagy, we trigger the breakdown of proteins, and the body actually starts to break down some of the connective tissue, some of the skin, and recycles that. That's why they don't have as much of the skin problem as we see with some of the other people who have lost, you know, 100 pounds. So, you know, we've, we've put a few... Um, you know, stories up of people who have noticed this. It's mostly anecdotal, but it's a very, very interesting thought that you can actually get the body to burn off some of this protein because it's not just the fat that needs to go. Um, there's this excess protein. And again, where people get excited about this is for that, but also for certain diseases like Alzheimer's disease, for example, where you have an excess of protein, uh, you know, this amyloid protein gumming up the brain. Can you activate autophagy and therefore prevent things like um, Alzheimer's disease? It's a good question. Can you prevent things like cancer? It's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that, but theoretically, it's a possibility. And of course, the research would have to, you know, has, has still a ways to catch up with it because, as I said, autophagy just became very topical in 2016. So it's not even a couple of
0: years. Well, just a comment on the on the skin aspect. I mean, I believe it was Walter Longo's group that found that um, a fasting mimicking diet led to organ shrinkage, and so it wouldn't um, be a stretch of the imagination to uh, wonder whether or not that could occur in skin as well. Um, so, is it is it do you believe that autophagy is not occurring at a you know at under a shorter time frame does it does it only occur during longer fasts or does it cuz i would kind of assume that at the micro level it's occurring you know fairly you know with somewhat with somewhat more regularity
1: uh, again it depends on what your baseline is right so mtor is the main regulator of autophagy as far as we know and if mTOR levels are low, that's what triggers this autophagy. Hmm. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, if you're eating a lot of protein, then the body's going to think that, okay, I don't need to break down my own protein. It, there's probably a baseline level that goes on uh, all the time, but it's really uh, sort of ramped up during fasting. And it's it's not just sort of any fasting, it's, it's, it's specifically sort of dietary protein, so um, can you get into that by 16, 18, 20 hours? I think so. But if your baseline is very high, that is, if you're eating tons and tons of protein, then it's going to be harder. See, there's a trade-off here between, uh, you know, mTOR, insulin. They're all growth factors, um, and that's why people gain weight with it. But also for people who are, say, bodybuilders, they want that high mTOR. So that's why they take protein supplements and so on, because they want that increased uh, hormonal stimulus to grow. Um, but it grows for muscles, it grows for fat cells too. So, But of course, they're watching their diet and they're exercising a lot, so therefore they don't gain as much of the fat. Um, but that's why they do a lot of these protein shakes. You see that with a lot of athletes, they're doing protein shakes and protein supplements and all this sort of thing, uh, because they are growth factors. But uh, you got to remember that if you're talking um, disease prevention and autophagy, the high mTOR levels are going to prevent autophagy from happening. Like the dietary protein turns off autophagy very fairly quickly. So even with the fasting, it has to be sort of a fairly strict fast, not not like you know one of these sort of. Uh, you know the ones say even with like bone broth, there's some protein in there it could potentially turn off the autophagy. Mm. Um, the the good news is of course that if if your baseline is like 12 to 14 hours, like it was in the 1970s, it doesn't take very long to get into that autophagy range, right? If your baseline's at 14 hours, say you eat dinner at six o'clock and eat breakfast at eight o'clock every day, you're getting 14 hours. It doesn't, you know you skip breakfast one day, you've you've pushed yourself into sort of 16, 18 hours already, Um, already at the point that you're getting into the autophagy. The problem is if your baseline is sort of not 14 hours of fasting every night, your baseline is sort of nine hours of fasting every night because you're eating until 11 p.m. sort of thing, um, then it's going to take more to get into that autophagy range. So, you know, the data is not all there, but I think you know i think that we're going to see a lot of really exciting uh sort of science coming out of out of this uh that is going to point to some of the health benefits and rejuvenating benefits of autophagy
0: i think so as well um i always one of the more frequent questions that i get asked is it okay to uh consume coffee while fasting
1: yeah so it's it's all a matter of what your goals are. So, technically, most people consider a fast sort of water only. So, technically, no, it wouldn't be a fast. But if you're doing it to lose weight, are you going to notice a difference between taking water and coffee? No sugar, no sweeteners, of course. Right. Um, and cream, I would limit it to very little. Uh, but is it going to make much difference? And it's like, no, it's not going to make much difference. So yeah, maybe there's going to be a stimulation of insulin a little bit. It'll blip up a little bit. So you See, the whole point of fasting for weight loss is to drop the insulin levels. So when you drop insulin, you get your body to start burning some of the stores of energy. So maybe that coffee brings your or bone broth or whatever, maybe that's going to bring your insulin levels up a bit. And then it's just going to drop down again. So it's like you're, you're going to get most of the benefits. Um, for autophagy, because some of the proteins can sort of turn it off again, it's going to blip up a little and then down, uh, you're going to want to stick mostly to the water fast. But for most people, if, if the coffee makes it easier to fast, and it does for me, I usually use coffee when I fast, not that I do, but I, I drink it almost every day anyway. Um, Therefore, the the coffee is not going to make a big difference if you're fasting, sort of for weight loss. For other reasons, like autophagy, yes, you might want to cut it out, um, you know, for religious reasons and so on. But uh, for most people, it's sort of a weight maintenance, overall health. That that bit of coffee is not going to make a huge difference.
0: Got it. Makes a lot of sense. I we're almost we're we're basically out of time. Do you have? Can I ask you one one last question before uh before we run? Um, so, I mean, what, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the fact that protein, um, is something that, you know, for a very long time was thought to be hard on the kidneys, especially with, you know, high protein diets, but you're a nephrologist. So I have to ask your stance on high protein diets. And if there's ever a a situation in which you would recommend limiting protein to a patient.
1: Um, not really. So it's, you know, in terms of high protein diets, I don't really recommend high protein diets. So, uh, sort of.
0: And what is a high protein diet?
1: Well, the recommended daily allowance is about 0. 0.8 grams per kilo per day. Um, most Americans are sort of in the one to one and a half range, but certain people say you should go up to like two. So, it's it's a lot of protein. Mostly, I suggest people stick to sort of the recommended daily amount because protein. Most people get enough protein um, in their diets. So, do you need to eat more protein? Not really. I mean, and that's been the big change between, say, a keto ketogenic diet and just a low carb diet before. So. It, the atkins diet and so on didn't have any specifications in terms of protein they said well cut your carbs but eat as much protein or fat as you want whereas the ketogenic diet which is very popular these days says well don't go crazy on the protein because that can kick you out of ketosis right so i generally follow more along that lines that is to say you shouldn't eat a huge amount of protein um you know, that being said, does it do your kidneys any harm? And the, the answer is no. It, there's no evidence that um, somebody who is otherwise healthy eating a lot of protein is going to damage the kidneys. It just doesn't, there's just no evidence to suggest that is true. Um, In kidney disease, people like advanced kidney disease, people might want to limit their protein for other reasons. Um, But yeah, it's very, very few people in the world that would need to limit the protein um, or take a very high amount of protein. It's, it's, I would say, you know, sort of leave it in the medium range.
0: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, um, just one final question before we get to that. Um, where can listeners connect with you over the social web? And um, yeah, I know your your two books are available everywhere books are sold. If you want to just uh, let listeners know where they can find those.
1: Yeah. So you can get them anywhere, Amazon or any books, or I actually have three books. So I have the diabetes, the obesity code, which was, um, about uh, weight loss and weight gain, the diabetes code, which again is about, more specifically about uh, type 2 diabetes and the complete guide to fasting, which is a sort of more um, practical guide to fasting regimens and uh, what to look for and practical tips and so on. I have another book coming out with Dr. Uh, Dina uh called The Longevity Solution, which is coming in February. And that talks about um, basically strategies for healthy living, Mm -hmm. including fasting uh, as part of it, but also things like salt and, um, you know, green tea and coffee. So very uh, interesting uh, book on how to sort of uh, healthy aging, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Online, you can find me at uh, my website is idmprogram.com. So uh, I write a weekly blog. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Jason Fung. And uh, so our IDM program is offers a lot of other sort of free resources uh, for people. If they want, a, they can sign up for a 12-week sort of free introductory email course. And there's uh, the podcast, um, Low Carb MDs, which I do regularly as well. Um, and also uh, there's, you know, YouTube, you can find me. There's a bunch of uh, fake sites of mine. So just be careful of that. There's one. My site on YouTube is Jason Fung, but some guy took Doctor Jason Fung and is selling all kinds of stuff. And I tried to get him kicked off, but YouTube wouldn't kick him off. What? So, uh, just be careful about that because I don't want to. I don't want you to buy all this stuff that I'm not actually. You know, I have nothing to do with that uh, sort of stuff. Oh, um, and then in our IDM program, we have a membership community for people who want fasting support, and there's a free Facebook group. Uh, that you can join called the obesity code network um, fasting support so th- there's a number of ways uh, and, and we offer sort of tons and tons of free resources for people so between the youtube videos and the podcast and the blog and the um, and the um you know the the, the free free uh, course that we offer um, and then if people want more there's a paid membership community where there's a little bit more help and so on so but there's just a ton of free stuff on idmprogram.com so you know take you know full advantage of that because the thing is I'm not you know fasting is not a money maker for anybody Uh, and that's maybe why (laughs) nobody has really gotten behind it like I'm not trying to like if I recommend fasting and you listen to this podcast and you lose weight like you don't make money. I don't make money, but you get healthy. And that's all I, that's all we care about, right? You get the right information, you get healthy and everybody's, you know, everybody wins, right? Here, here,
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for doing the work that you do. You put a lot of great stuff out there. Um, so, you know, I just want you to know I'm appreciative. Uh, the last question that I asked everybody on this podcast is a bit more philosophical. What does it mean to you, Dr. Fung, to live like a genius? What does that, what does that mean to you?
1: Um I think that you know it, it it at this stage in my life, it's about you know, helping people like if to be a genius is, you know it's great if people think you're smart and so on, but in the end it's about helping people. Um, that's where true sort of, wealth is like you can't it's it's not the money like in the first half of your life you're trying to figure out how you're going to make a living right you go to school you see what job you have and so on once you figure that out then you you gotta you know you gotta figure out what to do with the rest of your life and it's very empty if all you're doing is chasing money because there's nothing to it and that's why guys like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett they made so much money they they've stopped trying to make money that doesn't give them any satisfaction life satisfaction and of course. In the end, the answer is, uh, you know, helping other people is what gives, uh, you know, a lot of meaning to life. And that's, you know, not just me, but so many of these other people have come to that same realization. Once you figure it out and you're not sort of scrambling for your next paycheck, then what gives people the most satisfaction in life is really being able to help other people. And that's where I want to be able to make a difference, I want to be able to say, you know what? I went out there, I gave people good information and practical advice that they could go back and say, you know what? I have this weight to lose. I have this disease. I have this and this. You know, I can make these simple changes. I can get healthier. And then hey, guess what? They can reverse their type two diabetes. So People write to me sometimes and they say, you know, thank you for what you do. You know, I was able to lose weight, my diabetes reversed, I got off these medications. And I know that, you know, they just saved themselves like a heart attack 15 years down the line, or they saved themselves from dialysis 15 years down the line. And it really makes me feel good. And it gives me sort of, um, you know, it, it gives me real satisfaction that somebody was able to take that Information that I put out there and improve their situation. So I was able to help people. And that's what it means to sort of live like a genius is that you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do what, what gives you satisfaction. And in, in life, it's almost always less about the money you make and always, almost always more about the people that you can help. And, you know, that's why I do it. That's why I go on podcasts that's where i write the books like the books and all like you know it's hard to money you can monetize it but you know i don't really know how to do that you know that's why i put out a lot of stuff for free even the books like you know i spend years writing a book and i get maybe two bucks for a book that i sell it's like it's not the money the money is never the 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 goal in writing these books uh because i would do way better being a doctor like I can see so many people in that those that time that I um, uh, that I spent writing the book I would have made sort of three times as much money, right? But it gives me like one tenth of the satisfaction of being able to help somebody uh, in that way, right? So it's it's you know that's that to me is sort of living like a genius is is being able to do something that will help a lot of people. You know sort of all over the world that's that's the ultimate
0: i couldn't agree more beautiful well dr fung thank you so much for your time and your work i really appreciate you being here on the genius life and to everybody out there listening in podcast land please take a moment out of your day to share this episode of the show on social media take a screen grab post it on your instagram stories tweet your favorite line from this episode at me, at Dr. Jason Fung, we would both really appreciate you spreading the word. And as Dr. Fung just mentioned, you know, don't underestimate your ability to help a person who needs this information. I mean, it's so critically important. You look at statistics of health, you know, in this nation and increasingly around the world, we're just in dire straits. And, uh, you know, if you can make an impact on just one person, it's going to add a lot of meaning to your life. Trust me. This has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace.